God, your grace is amazing. You have set your love upon us, an undeserving people, and have favored us with blessing upon blessing through Christ. And we, we give you praise and honor and glory for all that you are and all that you have accomplished in him. And now, Lord, we ask that you would come and speak to us, uh, speak clearly and enable us to hear clearly from this section of your word. Lord, we want to, to wrestle with what you have chosen to communicate to us, and we want to apply it to our lives. So would you be here, stir up your spirit in the hearts of your people, and speak to us, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. So misunderstandings are a part of life, part of my life, part of your life, part of all of our lives. We had quite a a humorous misunderstanding in the office this week where, you know, this past weekend we held a seminar on defeating pornography and a member came and shared they'd been confused when they saw the materials as to why exactly we were trying to defeat photography. (laughs) Apertures and lenses and lighting clearly holding a great danger to our sons and we should do all that we can to rid the church of this curse. Um, other uh, misunderstandings uh, are humorous, but completely harmful. You remember me sharing how, uh, having been in the States um, seven or eight years, it ta- finally dawned on me. Well, uh, my wife finally explained to me that 2% and half and half are, in fact, not the same thing. And that when I put one in my cereal, it is a credibly bad idea. You know, misunderstandings. Um, misunderstandings, of course, though, can be more serious. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright and co-founder of the London School of Economics said that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. The single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And misunderstandings, simple, innocent even, misunderstandings can have disastrous effects upon how we understand ourselves upon the decisions that we might make in life, upon our relationships with other people. And misunderstandings, of course, are an issue in our spiritual lives as well and can have equally disastrous consequences. And in this passage, Jesus addresses a misunderstanding that was common in his day and common in our day as well, addresses a misunderstanding over the relationship between the Christian and the law of God. The relationship between the Christian, that is, those people who have been saved, not by their own works, not by their own efforts, not because they have done anything to deserve it, but only by grace. How did these people, saved by grace, now relate to the law of God, the commands that he has given his people for their lives? The overarching point that we get from this passage is that grace and obedience go hand in hand. They are complementary and feed off one another. They in no way conflict. And to make this point, Jesus tells us three things about the law that we're going to look at briefly together. First thing Jesus tells us about the law is grace. He tells us that Jesus himself has fulfilled the law for us. Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. We read this in verse 17 where he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
The phrase law and prophets here is how Jesus and his disciples referred to the Old Testament. They didn't use the phrase Old Testament. Instead, they said law and prophets. So Jesus is looking back to the Old Testament. He's saying, don't think, don't even let it enter your mind that I have come to abolish these things, that I have come to get rid of the call to obedience. Rather, understand that I have come to fulfill these things. I have come to fulfill God's word. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? Three quick things. First of all, he fulfills their their content. At a very foundational level, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets because the Old Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament from beginning to middle to end is about Jesus. It is about the grace of God that will be given to his people through the Savior, Jesus. We see this in the prophecies about Jesus. They tell us about his birth. They tell us about his life. They tell us about his death. They even tell us about his resurrection. We see this even in the people of the Old Testament. We think of someone like Abraham, who was a stranger and a sojourner in the land, who would become the father of of many nations, pointing us toward Jesus, who would be uh, the ultimate foreigner, the ultimate sojourner, leaving heaven to come to earth to gather a people for himself. Or or Moses, the one who uh, leads the people out of slavery in Egypt, pointing us to Jesus, the one who will come and, and lead his people out of slavery to sin. Or Joshua, the one who comes and leads his people into the promised land, pointing us to to Jesus who leads us into the promised land. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, uh, uh, both the the prophecies that are about him, the people who point to him. Uh, We could think of uh, even the uh, promises that are made are all fulfilled in him from beginning to middle to end. Jesus is the hero. He is the star of the show. Every text of the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus. So at that level, yes, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. But there's two other senses that are important for us to wrestle with as we look at this text. And the first of these is that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and that he fulfills the law's demands. In his life here on earth, Jesus fulfills the law's demands by obeying the law perfectly. And it's really a staggering thought that Jesus, the one who is above all things, is brought down to earth and condescends and, as Galatians says, makes himself under the law. That the one who spoke the law, the one who dreamt up the law, now makes himself subject to it. And then in his life on earth, obeys it in the most minute of detail. So Jesus never does anything he ought not to do, and he always does everything he ought to do, and he always has a heart that is in tune with the Lord. He fulfills the law on our behalf, living the perfect life that we could not live. More than that, he then fulfills not just the law's demands, but also the law's penalty. As Jesus dies upon the cross, he takes the penalty or the punishment that the law requires. The law says that the punishment for sin is death, that anyone who is guilty of sin must die. And though Jesus himself hasn't sinned, he takes that penalty upon himself in our place. So he goes to the cross in order to fulfill this aspect of the law. Understand that the cross isn't just this supreme example of love. It is accomplishing something as he takes the punishment we are due 
upon himself. And for these reasons, because Jesus fulfills the law for you, for us, that's why we call Jesus our substitute. Substitute being the one who comes in and does what you are unable to do. And so I can't live the perfect life. I can't live the perfect day. I can't live the perfect hour or the, or the perfect minute. And I, I can't die that death. And Christ comes in and does those things on our behalf. The beauty of the gospel is that in reconciling the world to himself, God doesn't just abolish the law, sort of lower the cosmic standards to let people into heaven. Instead, he he sends a substitute who will fulfill the law in its content, in its demands, in its penalties on your behalf. So he said the perfect life must be lived, and Jesus lived that perfect life. And he said the punishment for sin is death, and Jesus died that death. So that any who have faith in him, any who will come and say, I recognize I've not lived that life, and I don't want to die that death, can be forgiven and welcomed into his family. Jesus begins with grace. He has come to fulfill the law because he knows that we can't. What does this mean then for us? Does this mean that the law has no bearing on our lives? Jesus says no and gives us a second principle in verses 18 and 19 where we see that not only has Jesus fulfilled the law for you, but he has also given the law to you. For truly, Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, the smallest letter, nor a stroke, uh, nor a dot, the, the stroke of a pen, uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus is referring back to the moral law. Think of the, the Ten Commandments, those laws that he has given to govern our lives, teaching how we should live in relationship to him and in relationship to one another. And it's a, a very practical uh, law. How should we conduct our marriages? How should we treat our neighbors? How should we be generous toward others? How should we navigate life, we are told, in the moral law? And in verse 18, he tells us that this law is here to stay. It is still relevant for you. And then in verse 19, he says that this law is still the standard for life in the kingdom. Yes, I have fulfilled it for you, but it remains the standard for life in the kingdom. How do we make sense of this? Three, three quick ideas. It really centers upon what the law does. And the law does, does at least three things. The first thing is that the law shows us the character of God. The Old Testament law shows us the character of God. Understand that when God gave his people law, he wasn't up in heaven sort of scheming up some ideas that he could put down on paper or stone to sort of make our lives difficult. So, yeah, don't steal. That's a good one. Let's throw that in there. And don't murder and, you know, don't commit adultery. That sounds, that's not a good thing to do. We should stop them doing that. Um, and let's come up with some other things that they're never going to be able to keep just so they'll feel bad about themselves. Right? When God gives us the law, he gives us a self-portrait of his character. And so the, the, the reasons he has given us these laws is that they are descriptive of him. They show us what he is like. To behold the law is to see our God in 
a picture. They describe what he is like that we might see what he is like. Having described the character of God, the second thing the law does is then sort of reveal the character of humanity, reveal our characters. That as we see God in perfection, the law then shows us that we have not attained or lived up to that perfection. The law highlights those areas in which we struggle or in which we sin. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, last Monday, I took a, a prayer day and went down to Lake Anna and I went for a run. And I was running across this bridge. And on the bridge, there's this sign that says, no fishing or jumping off the bridge. Right? What did I want to do the second I saw that sign? Right? I looked over the edge and I thought it would be really fun to jump off this bridge. Okay? Um, there's kind of this mischievous side in me that wasn't revealed until I was given a law. <laughs> until I was told not to do something, that mischievous side didn't really emerge. And in the same way, the law highlights those areas in which we, are, in which we sin, in which we struggle. It shows us, look, uh, see how you're using your tongue. This is not the way it is meant to be. See how you are treating your neighbor. This is not the way it's meant to be. See how you're acting in, in greed and materialism. It's not the way it's meant to be. It, it shines a light upon our sin. Not that we might feel bad about ourselves, but that we might go to Jesus and find forgiveness. Paul calls the law our schoolmaster to Christ. It is the thing that, that leads us to Jesus. As we see our sin, we go to Jesus. So the law shows us God's character. It shows us our own character. But the third thing it does is that it shows us the character of salvation. It shows us the character of the Christian life. In other words, it's, in recent weeks I've used the term blueprint. It's the, it's the blueprint for our Christian lives. For those who have been saved, not by works, not by obedience, but by grace alone, it holds up a picture of God that shows us how we ought to live. It gives us this um, sort of uh, guideline to living in uh, freedom and in the abundance of life that God has offered us. In other words, it's a pattern for our flourishing. And so you see that there's absolutely nothing legalistic about saying you must obey the law. It's the pattern for our flourishing. So there's nothing legalistic about saying that you must obey the law. Think about it. If you, if you go to Ikea and get one of those flat pack things and come home and unwrap it all and make sure you've got all the wee pieces and take out the instructions, you'd never say, it's so legalistic that they expect me to follow these instructions. You know, you're cooking dinner and you're trying a new recipe. You'd never say, I can't believe it calls for half a pound of butter. That's so legalistic to expect me to follow this thing, Right? Your furniture is going to be a disaster and your meal is going to be terrible um, if you don't follow the plan for flourishing. And so it's in no way legalistic to say we must obey the law because obeying the law is what brings freedom and life to us. It is the character of the Christian life held forth. And so this is why we should love the law. This is why, you know, the psalmists say, I love your law, I delight in your law. And you read that and you think, that's weird. They love it and they delight in it because it shows them the pathway to, to freedom and to life. And this is why Jesus reiterates to us again that it's still relevant to us. It's still relevant to us. And this is a really, it's a really practical or helpful application here for us as, as we struggle with sin. Because part of the deceitfulness of sin is to say that 
following the law, it's not fun, it's not good, it's not what you want to do. And and we need to remind ourselves, no, the the, the Lord has given us the law for our own good. And while I may be desiring that destructive thing right now, the spirit within me is calling me in another path, and the spirit is calling me to the path of life. Yes, that is tempting and seems enjoyable. And in the short term, might even be. But in the long run, I want to follow the law because the law has been given to me for my own good. So that's the second thing that we see. Jesus has fulfilled the law for you, but he has also given the law to you. Third thing comes from verse 20, which is a hard verse. And here we see that not only has Jesus fulfilled the law for you, but he will also fulfill the law in you. Fulfill the law in you. Let's look at this verse. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a shocking statement to Jesus' first listeners. There was actually a phrase in his day that if two men were to enter the kingdom of heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. So these words would have sounded to his disciples like Jesus is saying, unless you are more righteous than the most righteous person you know, unless you are more holy than the most holy person that you know, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are better than Mother Teresa, you are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it has a similar ring to our ears as well. What does Jesus mean by this phrase? How is it that we're to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, and the f- first thing is, is really that when we think about exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to understand that the scribes and the Pharisees were not as righteous as they thought they were. The scribes and the Pharisees were not as holy as they thought they were. Jesus tells us that they obeyed the law in a very partial way. He gives the example of how they would tithe of their mint and they would tithe of their spices, but they would neglect justice and they would neglect mercy. Not only were they partial, but they were also external. Jesus describes them as being whitewashed tombs, which is such a powerful image. You look good on the outside and inside is the stench of death. Uh, obeying with this very uh, sort of, um, just, just for the facade, just for the show. Uh, not only that, but they were also very prideful in their obedience. So Jesus tells the, the parable of the Pharisee and the, uh, the sinner who, uh, the, remember the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. In other words, the Pharisees were self-righteous, and therefore they weren't righteous at all. The Pharisees were self-righteous, and therefore they weren't righteous at all. Jesus is not saying to us, you've got to beat the Pharisees at their game, or you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying the Pharisees are playing the wrong game. I'm not concerned about partial obedience. I'm not concerned about external obedience. I'm not concerned about prideful obedience. What I want is a heart changed by my grace, a faith that evidences itself in works. So on one hand, Pharisees were not as as righteous as they thought they were. Second thing though, as we look at this verse in in this larger biblical context, we've got to challenge ourselves to realize that not only were they that less holy than they thought, but Jesus plans to make you more righteous, to make you more holy than you might often think. 
Jesus plans to be at work in your heart to bring change to your life in a way that is vaster, broader, greater than you might give it credit for. How is this so? Well, one theologian says, verse 20, that it establishes the need for righteousness, but does not establish how this righteousness is to be gained or developed or empowered. In other words, in this verse, Jesus is saying, yes, righteousness is a requirement. But from the larger biblical context, we know that that requirement is met or achieved. We are able to be more righteous as Christ brings grace to us. This righteousness is achieved by Jesus as he acts in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so we see that that grace and obedience are in no way intention. They don't don't conflict because the former grace is what enables the latter obedience. We are able to follow Christ because he has promised his presence with us. A couple of days ago I went um, to the store with one of my kids and when it came time to, to check out, I had, had them go and check out and, you know, look the person in the eye and speak nice and loud and hand the card over and, you know, doing the whole parenting, parenting thing. And um, all worked out beautifully and that was fine. So how is it that, you know, one of my kids that has never earned a cent in their, li- never earned a cent in their life it can check out and buy groceries? Because the one who sent them to do that has provided them with everything they need to get that done. The one who sent her also equipped her to fulfill the task at hand. And in the same way, Jesus says, I want you to live this life. And in the next coming weeks, we're going to see him talk about anger, talk about lust and marriage and our enemies and generosity and prayer and fasting and treasure and anxiety, all sorts of things. He says, I want you to live this life. But I'm going to give you the credit to do it. I'm not expecting you in and of yourself to have the resources to see this kind of change. But I'm going to meet with you by my spirit to make these things a reality for you. On one hand, I think this truth, two closing applications. On one hand, this truth is intended, I think, to be challenging. This verse is intended to be challenging. Throughout the Bible, understand the proof of having received grace is a changed life. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. He says in First John, we know that we have come to know God if we obey his commands. Again, for this is love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commands are not burdensome. I think we're being challenged not to, not to doubt our salvation. If you look at your life, it's not to doubt your salvation. It's to work this very salvation out with fear and trembling. That's what it means, to to work our salvation out with fear and with trembling, to challenge yourself. Have I fallen into a pattern of obedience that is like the scribes and the Pharisees, partial and external and, and prideful, when all the time my heart is actually pretty cold toward God? We should be seeing the sort of progress in our Christian lives. I would encourage you on that note before moving on, just pastorally, that um, progress can look like a lot of different things. It's very rare in my own experience anyway, just to have like super fast progress in an area of struggle. Progress can be slow. Progress can be glacial. 
Um, progress is sometimes just the desire to want progress. And even that desire is proof of the work of, the God, of, of God the Spirit in your heart. If, if the Spirit wasn't in your heart stirring these things up, you, you wouldn't have, have that desire to see change. And so don't doubt your salvation because you're struggling in a particular area. Rather recognize that Jesus is calling you to make progress and he's going to equip you to progress in the end. And you may be able to say, like me, you know what, today I'm just a little bit more bearable because of the work of Christ in my life. If Jesus had not been at work in my life, who knows what it would be like. Um, Progress doesn't have to be grand and dramatic. So the truth is challenging. And the second hand, and lastly, I think it's also deeply encouraging. Because Jesus has a life planned for you that's so remarkable that only grace could achieve it. And I need to hear that word, and maybe you need to hear that word too, precisely for those areas in which you're struggling. That, that as a believer in, in Jesus Christ, he, he is here to come alongside you, to help you through whatever it is that you're wrestling with. That there is no sin that is to be an interminable life sentence that will just become worse and worse with time. Now, of course, there may be sins you struggle with your entire life, but the point is that, that Jesus desires to fulfill the law in you. He desires to enable you to make progress with these struggles. And that's especially important for anyone this morning who has just struggled with whatever it might be, with anger, with bitterness, with lust, with great um, guilt upon their conscience, disrupting life in your family, disrupting your marriage, bringing sort of destruction to your relationship with God. If there are things in your life like this that have been ongoing, maybe ongoing for, for some time, understand that Jesus calls you to bring these things into the light that you might see progress in them. The, the, the great tragedy for me, I was reflecting on this as I thought about the pornography seminar we had yesterday. The, the great tragedy in my heart for this flock is, is all the people in our pews who are really struggling with, with pornography and, and haven't told anyone and haven't brought it to the surface. Jesus says, I, I plan to en- enable you to greater and greater levels of obedience. So if you're struggling with something, something, come make it known and come talk to us. Come use the church. Let us uh, come alongside you and try try love you and try love you well to, to figure out with you exactly how in your circumstance with the details that you're wrestling with, the Lord might be working to bring progress, to bring healing to your life. I'm out of time. Summary. Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. We don't live right. We can't die that death. Jesus has done it on our behalf. Secondly, Jesus gives the law to you. He, he gives it to you that we might know how to follow him. It's a great blueprint for our flourishing. Thirdly, Jesus plans to fulfill the law in you. He provides the credit card, the resources, everything that that you need for life in him. You know, as a church, we may not be able to defeat photography. um, (laughs) But it's amazing what Christ will do in us by his grace. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you for the straight talk of this passage. And Lord, we thank you that when you saw us in our sin and when you saw us in our brokenness, you didn't just call us to do better because you know that we can't. And so you fulfilled the law for us, sending Christ as our substitute to live and to die on our behalf that we might be reconciled to you. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us this salvation by grace and then given us a blueprint for our living. You've given the law to us that we might know how to follow you, that we might know how to flourish. And we thank you, Lord, that you've promised to be with your people and to enable us to, to follow this law that grace and obedience kiss in the gospel as we are equipped by your strength to follow you. Lord, we, um, we need this word and ask that you apply it to our hearts by the power of your perfect spirit. Amen.